and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide variety of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Ann Jopp Jacobson, Professor of Philosophy at Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Houston. Her new book, Keeping the World in Mind, Mental Representations and the Sciences of the Mind, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. Some theorists and the cognitive scientists have argued that the notion of that minds represent the world gets our relationship to the world wrong, and that the sciences of the mind don't need or use a concept of mental representation. In her new book, Jacobson argues that what is needed is a different kind of theory of what mental representations are, one that reflects the way the notion of representation is actually used in cognitive neuroscience. On her view, mental items do not represent or stand in intentional relations to the world. Instead, they are samples or instances of the same kinds as captured by common mathematical descriptions. This display or sampling model has its roots in Aristotle's theory of perception, but is found in contemporary theories of brain function as well, such as when seeing a particular action causes the neural pattern for doing that action to be activated. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Ann Jopp Jacobson. Hi, Karen. Hi, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you, and thank you for asking me to do this interview. I think this is a wonderful project you all are embarked upon, and I'm very, very pleased to be part of it. Uh, well, I'm happy to be talking with you about your new book, Keeping the World in Mind, Mental Representations and the Sciences of the Mind. Um, and you are giving there a basically a, a defense of an alternative view of mental representation um, that, uh, on your view, is more appropriate for its uses, or at least some uses, um, in cognitive neuroscience in particular. Um, so to, to start off uh, the book, the interview, um, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how what, what led you to write this book, I mean, and, and how it connects with your previous your previous work that, you know, is uh, directly connected to this particular book. Absolutely. Um, let me say that, uh, really, I started on this project, but didn't realize it quite some time ago, probably in the 1970s. I, at that time, was in Oxford, and the paradigm of philosophy of mind really was stuff like Kenny's Action, Emotion, and Will, which I found a sort of delightful uh, uh a collection of uh, intuitions, but not something I myself could undertake. And then Davidson appeared upon the scene, and we had, this is really the, the late 60s, we had the idea that there are these mental states uh, that are propositional attitudes that enter into causal relations. And my very first thought, actually, on encountering the Davidson program was not particularly positive. Uh, I thought that what he was doing was, in effect, um, inferring ontology off of logical form. I mean, I think that is actually what he was doing. And while uh, I hadn't at that point formulated objections to that, it just doesn't sound to me like a very good uh, way of proceeding. Uh, So that was my first uh, big uh, 
poem about the idea that there are mental representations, that they're realized in the brain, and that they do these causal things. Um, my second thing really came when I finally could no longer avoid doing uh, philosophy of mind, and I was teaching uh, at, at the University of Houston. I had before that been uh, at Rutgers, and there were too many people who wanted to do the philosophy of mind, but I was needed. I, they needed somebody to do the philosophy of mind at uh, U of H. So uh, I'm just finding my notes here. So I took it on, and one of the um, on, on encountering Crumb, the computational representational understanding of the mind, I felt myself um, uh, struck, first of all, by the fact that it didn't seem to me that it had anything to do with how at least I was thinking. It certainly had a lot to do with how I described how I was thinking in more formal contexts, but it didn't seem to me to have much to do about how um, uh, what actually went on in the buzzing and blooming of one's mind. Uh, but uh, I certainly didn't want to say, oh, well, all these people believe in mental representations, and I don't, and I'm right, and they're all wrong. Rather, I thought, they're all seeing something that I don't see. So in 1999, I decided to do a literature search on uh, literature searches and search engines were relatively new, at least in my experience. And I did a literature search on uh, mental representations. And I started to read all this stuff coming from the sciences. And th at this point, it was less neuroscience. This was before the decade of the brain. There was all this stuff on various sciences, and it was I, I recognized the model they were using when they were talking about representations. And I recognized it from my days at Roman Catholic schools when we read enormous amount of Aquinas. And it was very much an Aristotelian Thomistic picture. Uh, there was a, a, a Society for Philosophy and Psychology meeting that I know you and I were at, both of us. And I remember we had a, a session on representation. And there was Somebody, I think he was a neuroscientist, and he was talking about representations of sentences in the brain. And somebody said, oh, I'm so glad you're all talking about representation. And I remember asking him, I said, look, <clears throat> do you think that's because there's something in the brain that's about the sentence? Or do you think that in some sense the sentence gets nearly realized in the brain? And he said, oh, it's the latter that I'm talking about. So this Thomistic Aristotelian idea that uh, things can get realized in one's mind or brain was really uh, a, a very, very widely spread in what was then called the cognitive sciences. And I wrote about a lot of this literature in a and, uh, 2003 article that came out in Philosophical Psychology on mental representations. Well, let me, um, so you, yeah, you've mentioned Aristotle, um, and you, you contrast uh, the view that you've briefly introduced uh, with what you call a, a Fodorian view. Yeah. Um, uh, so this is a basic distinction that you draw in the be beginning of the book, 
um, before you go into some historical, you know, Humean aspects behind it, and then go forward to its applications to the emotions and action and beliefs and so on. But to, to start out the, the, the initial chapters of the book, you draw this basic distinction, the, the Fodorian or received or standard view in which mental, re- mental representations stand in some sort of aboutness or intentional relation to the world, to what they're about. Um, and then your alternative, what you alternatively call a, a sampling view, an Aristotelian view, um, that you just describe in terms of realizing, in some sense, the same thing. So maybe you could to just summarize what these two different views are, what the important differences are uh, between them. Yes. Um, let me just be clear. I'm in a way asking that people really rethink this kind of material. Uh, I don't think that there are mental representations in the Fedorian sense. Um, <clears throat> but let me try to contrast, uh, give you some a sense of the contrast. There are a couple of sort of ways we can access what I think the fundamental contrast is in ordinary life. And one of the distinctions is the distinction between displaying and describing. So Aristotelian representations are much more on the displaying side, and Fedorian representations are much more on the describing side. And there's a great deal of difference between displaying and describing when we look at things like uh, Tai Chi, I can I can pretty much do Tai Chi if I'm watching a video. I can do this, but it would be extremely difficult. I'm not using this as argument against them, but rather just to the contrast, it'd be extremely difficult to learn Tai Chi from a manual with descriptions of the actions. Um, uh, other examples, uh, I could describe to you the taste of whiskey, or I could give you a sample of it. And uh, that's another contrast between uh, displaying or making available and uh, describing. Um, A second uh, way of looking at it is to see that in some very general sense, I think that um, Aristotelian representations have a lot to do with similarity and Rodorian representations have just about nothing to do with similarity, except, of course, in, I mean, it may in some strange cases that we could cook up. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, does that start to make it clearer? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm just, um, well, let's maybe by, by focusing on why you call it Aristotelian. Uh, Because Aristotle famously, you know, he had this view of of, of perception, you know, leading to cognition. But, you know, perception, the where the eye, you know, looking at a a red object, for example, you know, takes on some intelligible form. Right. This is all based on his metaphysics of form and matter. But, you know, it takes on an intelligible form that is in some sense just like is a sample of you know, the sensible form. Um, And so people have argued in the, in that literature that Aristotle literally means that the eye, something in the eye becomes red. Uh, Of course, the redness there 
is the intelligible redness that is somehow the same as the sensible redness of the tomato, uh, but it's um, there's there's not an it's not that the eye does something about the red. It's it is actually something of the same yeah. kind. So that's I mean that's I take it why you call it Aristotelian to begin with. Well, uh, let me just say Aristotle. I think there are probably different ways, uh, uh, but it is in the general Aristotelian Thomistic tradition important to distinguish between, between sensible forms and intelligible forms. And sensible forms are the sensory characteristics that are forms can be realized in matter, and they can be multiply realized in matter. So you get patches of red all over the place. And uh, you can also get the intelligible form of catness, for example, all over the place, including in cats and in your intellect. Um, so I, this idea that it, there's a very general idea of kind of re-realization. And so I think it comes, it's probably there before Aristotle, but it's certainly most clearly articulated first in Aristotle. And then it's picked up and uh, really hotly, hotly described by Thomas. One of the important things that, they, that both of them say, and it, it simply has to be true because we're not going to find cats inside you, that uh, these forms, when they're realized in the sensory system or in the intellect, are realized in a different way and realized in a way that's appropriate to them. And... Um, there's been some discussion of whether that just doesn't make the account vacuous. And some people say, no, it isn't vacuous because it occurs in a whole big theory. And other people say, well, yeah, that's about as vacuous as it can be, right? You get red in the brain, but not as... <laughs> it doesn't mean you're going to find something red in the brain because red is realized in the brain in a way that's different um, and that's appropriate to red being realized in the brain. So... Uh, it's a difficult view, and for my, I, this idea of realizing is why I started with Aristotle, but the view changes enormously according to the ontology you employ, and that's very, very important. So, for example, when we hit 20th, 21st, 20th and 21st century science, uh, let me see. Are you losing me? No. Uh-uh. Oh, oh, good, because my computer is saying, oh, uh, you've got to enter your password again and stuff like that. It's it's unhappy that I'm not giving you pictures. So uh, it said that in very first broad type. Anyway, um, what the ontology is makes a huge difference. But there's a general idea of realizing this there. Well, maybe can I can I uh, maybe a, an example might uh, I mean you mentioned cat and um, I mean this idea of something being realized in two different media uh, uh -huh. is is not a I mean it's not an odd one nowadays. Um, so for example, um, people will simulate or model a weather pattern yes. on a computer. Um, so you have a hurricane um, modeled on the computer, and then, of course, it's modeling something in the world. And oh. on your view, it's not the – okay, uh, you know, and tell me if this is correct or not. Um, the model is not about 
the hurricane. Um, it is just another instance or realization, as you put it, of the same thing, some abstract pattern, I take it. Um, is And, and you, you mentioned that these sample representations are somehow you know, em empirically equivalent or formally equivalent patterns. Um, so could you say something more about these patterns that make it the case that what is in the mind and what is outside the mind both realize the same formal pattern? Yeah, I'm not sure I want to put much stress on formal patterns, just uh, uh, it means that they can be described mathematically in the same way, and that that's an empirical fact that they can be described mathematically in the same way. Um, I'm, I'm, I think one of the one of the problems, uh, I mean, in the book, that's basically all I said. And the reason why that was basically all I said is that as far as I could see from the neuroscientists like Peter Diane, that's basically all he said. Uh, well, we've got these uh, capacities for mathematically describing uh, the uh, way in which stimulus impinges on the eye and the patterns of... Uh, neural firing that result and the transformations of these neural firing, we've got this kind of uh, um, uh, mathematical capacity to, as it were, sort of uh, see how this unfolds and see how, and which we can still take ourselves to be describing the same thing. What I've since discovered, and I don't know how I missed it, is that there is really an industry now, uh, though it seems to be centered around a few people, one particularly in Cambridge, uh, on representational uh, similarity understood uh, geometrically. And so uh, there's an effort to look at um, how we could consider patterns the same, this is the same pattern, uh, but transformed in certain ways. And unfortunately, I've just discovered it within the last month, and it is mathematically very difficult for me. But I can give you what I also discovered is where it came from, uh, which was in the 1970s. And here's a statement by Tversky that gives you an idea of the kind of thing we're doing. Um, he says... Uh, a new set theoretical approach to similarities developed in which objects are represented as collections of features and similarities described as a feature matching process. Specifically, a set of qualitative assumptions is shown to imply the contrast model, which expresses a similarity between objects as a linear combination of the measures of their common and distinctive features. Several predictions of the contrast model tested in studies of similarity with both semantic and perceptual stimuli, the model predicts behavior and so explains behavior. Um, so the idea in both now that kind of approach is now taken from behavior to the neuroscience and the idea is that we can look at patterns of spiking and we can talk about similarities and differences from the uh, stimulus array. And uh, I mean, that's, 
that's an Aristotelian representation. When you go from a stimulus array to a pattern in all firing, and you have a mathematical ability to talk about similarities and differences, and that that is the core of your notion of representation, is uh, similarities and differences. Okay, so um, could you say something about um, what, how you motivate the, uh, the Aristotelian view? You, your, your core argument seems to be um, uh, an argument more or less familiar from the mentor causation literature, um, the idea that uh, somehow contents uh, in the more traditional sense are, are causally irrelevant. Um, can, you, can you explain that? Explain why I think they're causally irrelevant? No, why, uh, well, what, what motivates your, um, well, your alternative view? It's that this is the view that's there in neuroscience, and the idea is that it is going to explain human cognition. So I think that's an important phenomenon. I think it may well explain human cognition, and it has, for me, really desirable implication. For example, if content is in the head, then what we think about as our mental lives supervenes at in part on stuff that isn't in the head, and in particular, it's uh, got a very distinctive social factor to it. So for me, that's that's important. Somebody, I thought. <laughs> So nice to see myself described in an article in Hypatia saying, oh, well, this is a, a neo-feminist materialism, uh, which is, that says it's, uh, I mean, the brain is very important, it's very materialist, but it also says that uh, social components are there not just as causes, but they're, they're as constitutive of what content is. So I think there is semantic content, thank God, right? And it's in language. Uh, but what uh, the base for the content that is correctly ascribed to ourselves uh, goes far beyond what's in the brain. Um, okay, well, um, I mean, there are people uh, in the traditional, you know, sort of, intentional camp or, or aboutness camp, I suppose you might, might call them, who are also in, internalists about, about content. Uh-huh. Um, yes, most of them are. Well, many. Many, many are, are externalist or, or dual, yeah. um, you know, dual factor theorists. Um, so uh, what would make your view... Uh, a better alternative to say somebody who is a uh, who thinks that content is determined by you know causal relationships or aboutness or that there is aboutness um, um, but who is an internalist about content well I, I'm actually not sure how I uh, let, me, let me try this um, what I wanted to look at is what empirically informed scientific view of the mind is. Mm -hmm. And there, when I see representations, I don't see aboutness mm -hmm. or anything like semantic content. What I see is a dominant notion of similarity. And I see it in a way that it has to do with the realization of features. And it looks very Aristotelian to me. So I think that has a lot to recommend it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure quite what 
to think about the alternatives except that um, I don't think that we have a coherent story of internal content. Uh, I was looking at Lewis Carroll's uh, uh, The Hunting of the Slark, because I think mental representations, and <clears throat> we'll see this if we separately discuss uh, the um, historical work that I've been trying to do. Mm-hmm. But mental representations are a very recent re- uh, invention. If you look at the Philosophical Index, I think there's something like five or ten uh, instances of mental representation until a year after Jerry Photo's book, The Language of Thought. Mm-hmm. And so I think mental representations, as philosophers nowadays understand them, is a very recent uh, invention. I think that uh, it has enormous problems. And uh, at the same time, even though it says it's doing what the neuroscientists are doing, it's not. Uh, there's this wonderful um, passage from Lewis uh, Carroll's The Snark. Uh, the Snark is a mythical beast. Mm-hmm. They, thought it was thim- they thought it was thimbles. They thought it with care. Uh, they pursued it with forks and hoop. They threatened its life with a railway share. They charmed it with smiles and soup. Now, I don't want to say that that's my view of contemporary <laughs> would be incredibly arrogant to say that. But I don't think that this other story uh, works. Now, I was thinking that one should say something about this at some point. What my view is doing is it's really presenting a very different picture uh, to the dominant one. Uh, I've, I've heard Jesse Prince and I have talked some about this, and I've heard him come to a very similar view. And some people are very optimistic about this view. Uh, Bill Bechtel has been wonderfully supportive, for example. Uh, but something like this is very difficult. First of all, it's very difficult to ask people to do these things the whole field. It's very difficult to do it. Um, and it's uh, not very publishable. So I get, uh, I've published two or three articles directly on this. Um, Aristotelian representations show up. I sneak them in in almost everything else I've published. Mm-hmm. People have asked for a work of mine, but uh, you're not going to find anybody referring to them. And uh, when I, if I submit a thing about mental representation, say in Hume, then the referees really do not behave, often do not behave very well. Right. Uh, to say the least. Yeah. Um, so difficulty in publishing something that really does try to rethink the whole field. <clears throat> well, let's. I mean, there's a there's a couple. I want to move to the to the Hume sections. Mm. Um, but 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 before I do that, I did want to just ask about um, you know most again you know the traditional view. You know, people talk about satisfaction conditions or truth mm-hmm. conditions, right? Of belief. You know, desires are satisfied. Beliefs are true or false. Um, what do you, what sorts of conditions, I mean, obviously we do have, you know, we, we have false beliefs and desires that are unsatisfied and so forth. You're, you you won't be using, if you use that language, it has to be interpreted some other way, or you use a different language. So how would you, in your framework, how would you talk about what other people talk about when they use the term truth conditions or satisfaction conditions? 
Well, I think there are truth conditions and satisfaction conditions for beliefs, uh -huh. but I think beliefs are simply in the head. I don't think anything in the brain has truth conditions or satisfaction conditions. Interestingly enough, people who've been Aristotelians, as I understand them, in particular Aristotle, Aquinas, and Hume say, I mean, Hume says ideas are neither true nor false. Um, and one of the interesting things that Hume then does, because beliefs are lively ideas and beliefs are true or false, he's, I mean, he's got a problem there. And uh, I think Annette Bias has suggested that he's got uh, a dual aspect theory, and it, it is, uh, it's both ideas and language. And that's in part what my solution is, that we do attribute beliefs to ourselves and to other people. They are true or false. And language makes a lot of this possible. But what we're not doing is describing states of the brain, which are true or false. Okay. Um, um, says, for example, and Aristotle says something very similar, uh, an, an idea of red, right, uh, is represents that is copies the red, and if there isn't a red for it to copy, then it's not that it's a false idea of red. It's just not an idea of red at all. So, um, a sample of something. If that thing doesn't really exist, then you can't have a sample of it. Right. So then, what is what is the relationship between the the samples that are in the head um, and the beliefs that we ascribe that can be true or false? Well, I mean, I think that's a, um, uh, I, th I think actually that uh, there isn't uh, some natural kind like belief that our belief descriptions do a lot of different things, uh -huh. um, that they may place our actions in a particularly familiar context, mm -hmm. um, uh, and also the same with animals, we say, um, the cat is scared, uh, uh, trying to place it in its behavior in a particular pattern. Uh, that doesn't mean... So... Um, Beliefs, ascriptions are often parts of explanations, making sense of things that in them are certain patterns. Uh, very often, what inside of us is causing that pattern is something that is really subtoxic. Reed Montague has really wonderful work, I think, on this. Uh, but actually, it, it sort of sounds a little bit Dinettian. Yeah. I think it does, except that, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't go along with Dennett, as I take him, to accept some of the standard uh, uh, ideas of uh, what, our, what our ascriptions are doing, our uh, cause and effect ascriptions. I don't think explanations of actions need be cause-effect explanations, for example. Um, okay, so we, you mentioned Hume before, and yeah. in the middle chapters uh, of the book, um, you go into some Hume scholarship and, and present him as a, a sort of an Aristotelian, at least in some sense. Um, uh, can, you, can you explain the Humean link there? 
Well, Hume is an Aristotelian, I think. Okay. He does say uh, ideas copy impressions, and they have all the same features except for force and capacity. Um, and that sounds like Aristotelian to me. Uh, I, there are a couple of reasons for uh, bringing in the history of philosophy. One is that I think it is just false to think that there's some common notion of representation that has been used through the centuries, and we can look at Aristotle and say, oh, when Aristotle talks about representations, he's talking about the same thing as the uh, 21st century analytic philosopher. I think that's, that's just a wrong approach, and it's to be very, very interesting that this conviction has seized the historical, has really heavily influenced historical research because when we went through the uh, idea that all modern philosophers were really skeptics and there was the hero of Wittgenstein who came and enslaved them all with a private language argument, uh, people started to say, hey, wait, we shouldn't be really historical philosophers as so they were writing in the 21st century. But I think that has happened with representation. And so that's one of the things I wanted to try to bring out and to challenge. And so I looked, I think, for example, Pasnow, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, has some really bad criticisms of Aquinas. He thinks that Aquinas gets confused between the content of an idea or a mental state. And uh, he thinks the sort of semantic features get treated in odd ways, and he doesn't understand. Um, anyway, I think maybe I should leave that for readers, readers of the book to see. But that was one reason. The second reason was I wanted to display the extent to which this Aristotelian notion has been a notion in um, the history of philosophy. And discovering it in Hume was um, wonderful and something of a surprise, <laughs> I must say. Um, so that was another thing. And then a third thing is that I think Hume's arguments, some of his arguments start to look really good. People think that they can just dismiss the argument against abstract ideas because obviously we can have an abstract idea of quantity, but in fact, uh, or an abstract idea of a triangle. But in fact, uh, if we think we have an abstract idea of a triangle, then we're not employing Hume's conception of an idea. And when we do look at his conception of the idea, the argument looks very much better. So I thought that was really kind of exciting. And then finally, Hume may be the first, but certainly uh, he's a good example of somebody who sees that with the theory of ideas, you really do need language uh, to, to uh, add in essential features that you're not going to get simply from the theory of ideas. And that's a net bias insight. Okay, so what, um, could you could you say a bit more about that, about what language adds? Well, I'm, you know, I've suddenly played a blank on where Annette sees that he does this, mm -hmm. and it may be uh, in the theory of ideas. So, yes, I think that's it. So, so though we don't have abstract ideas, we do have abstract terms. Mm -hmm. And so that's what makes it possible uh, to do all sorts of things that we couldn't do if we were 
tied down completely to very specific ideas. And then there are other problems that he has that he doesn't bring language in particularly, but he could. And I think the belief one is one of them, where beliefs are these ideas that are neither true nor sorry, ideas are neither true nor false, but beliefs are that ideas and they are true or false. Mm-hmm. That's a huge problem. So you could distinguish between ideas in the mind and belief descriptions. So let me, um, you mentioned, you know, the, the mental, representation, mental representations and ideas have, you know, changed throughout history and there's different sorts throughout history. Oh, um, no, what, there are different sorts. Yeah. Um, there are different ontologies. Right. Um, I think here's something that I should mention. Look at the Oxford English Dictionary, at the word representation. There's very little unity to it. But there's not a hint of anything like um, uh, content as we understand it today. There are all sorts of examples from th- throughout the history of English, and nothing like what we uh, understand it to mean today. The possible exceptions, if I remember correctly, it's been years since I've looked at it. Possible exception is that you might represent somebody in a bad light. And that starts to look a little bit more close, mm-hmm. close to a kind of uh, content, maybe, or something like right. that. Can, could you, um, I mean, you, you said at the very beginning, and, and you say this throughout the book, that the, the view that you're presenting, the alternative, um, is one that is, you know, found, you know, in the, in the relevant sciences itself, in, in cognitive neuroscience. Um, could you maybe give it a, a Good example of a theorist that is, you know, that where your sample view um, actually, you know, appears to be the one that's being used. Uh, um, yeah, uh, there's certainly a whole area where it's just very, very obvious. But let me um, uh, mention that if you look up, uh, if you Google representation similarity in geometry, you're going to find a whole lot of people who are trying this project of seeing uh, patterns of real excitation in terms of geometrically describable similarities and differences. Um, but the area where it seems to be completely uh, uh, clear is one, in fact, in which one of its main proponents wrote me. I had snuck in <laughs> representations and in introduction to uh, uh, a journal that I was a journal I was editing, and um, Marco Iacoboni wrote and said, "Oh, he said this is the first time I've seen it. This is representation as as we've been using it, and it, it, a, a lot of his work at the time was mirror neurons, and the idea that uh, when I watch somebody perform an action, I get realized in me the." Um, a uh, uh, motor program for performing that action. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and also that I can't remember if he was then writing about emotions, but plenty of people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when I see somebody who's sad, I feel sad. And that is, I get an instance of that uh, pattern of uh, that unfortunate pattern in my brain. And I feel the same thing. So, that kind of case where the patterns realized in the brain are 
the same as one that you don't need fancy mathematics to understand that. That's just, uh, that's common experience and I think a very interesting underlying explanation. Well, we feel sad because our brains are uh, resonating in such a way that we're now in the same state. Um, well, you, yeah, you just mentioned, you know, action and emotion. And um, one of the interesting things you do at, you know, toward the end of the book after discussing the, you know, the human historical roots um, is to look at particular cases or applications, you know, in particular areas of mental, uh, particular kinds of mental phenomena, um, you know, vision, um, action, emotions, um, and belief. Um, and I thought it would be a good idea to look at some of those aspects. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so in terms of uh, vision, perhaps, um, maybe you can, to start with that, um, how your theory informs uh, theories of, of vision. Yes. Um, I think with... Uh, I'm trying to remember, when I was writing on vision, I was starting to pick up uh, uh, reasons for rejecting a kind of intentionist view. That is, that when I open my eyes, what I receive is um, a Fedorian representation of the environment around me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't get that. I think it's, uh, it's been known for some time that uh, the reaction I have is at best uh, very gappy, uh, incomplete. Uh, um, picture, I suppose one might say, of uh, elements in my environment. And what interested me in that chapter was really what is the sort, because we, we don't describe ourselves that way at all. We describe ourselves in terms of having really a very complete uh, view of the world around us. And in fact, uh, we tend to believe we have this very complete view of the world around us. And the book, The Invisible Gorilla, which I hope most people know about, and if you don't know about it. Oh, Daniel Simon. You, you must go get it. Uh, what happens uh, is that juries, for example, are very fierce with people who claim they didn't see something. And yet, of course, uh, we often don't see something. Uh, I have this terrible trouble with keys and glasses. And you can be looking at something and simply not see it. And that's because seeing depends an awful lot on uh, the direction of attention, for example. And attention is very, very limited. But I must say right now, I don't know how to describe um, uh, visual experience in general. Uh, that is, I don't think we have the Fedorian representations we think we have. Uh, and I have a pretty good idea of how we can describe it neurally. But I don't have an answer to the problem of qualia. And uh, I wish I did. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, how about um, uh, you also find um, uh, a connection between your view and uh, Barsalo's theory of perceptual symbol systems? Yeah. Um, can could you go into this connection? Sure. Uh, that was to me completely amazing to um, read him and have him say, see him say, well, when we remember something, what we're doing is we're getting uh, a sort of copy of the original experience and it has the same features. I mean, it's really a very, very human kind of view. But, but he does talk in terms of uh, uh, thinking in terms of a manipulation of uh, 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 tokens that uh, copy our experience. It's not about our experience, mm-hmm. but rather copies the experience. Or it's, it's another exemplar of it, or sample. Well, it has, it's like the uh, Tversky thing. It has, uh, he is going to say, uh, a number of the same features. But we're going to have to understand same features. Um, and I don't think he does this. We're going to have to understand it a bit in a guarded way because, of course, uh, they aren't, the vivid, they don't have the vividness of actual sensory experience. They're copies of sensory experiences. They have this, many of the same features, but uh, in a slightly different way. I'm trying to think, I probably have some. Also around here. Um, uh, let me see if I can just put. Uh, let me see. Um, my hands on a bit of it. Uh, it's in chapter seven, and. Uh, uh, which is entitled Thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, here he says, uh, the convergent zone architecture has the functional ability to reenact sensory, motor, and introspective states. Once conjunctive neurons in convergent zone capture a pattern of activation in a future area, these neurons can later reinstantiate the pattern in the absence of bottom-up stimulation. Mm-hmm. During the recollection of a perceived Object, for example, conductive room to reenact the sensory, motor, and introspective states that were active while processing it originally. Um, so it's reenactment. Uh, however, at least some semblance of the original state is partly reinstantiated. So that's not an appeal to content at all. Mm-hmm. Similarity. A rather guarded one. Um. Let me let me ask about you mentioned also the emotions um, and you have a chapter or two chapters actually I think um, on on how your view informs our theorizing about about the emotions and one of one of the things you argue is that they're they like beliefs I think you mentioned are not a natural kind yeah um, can can you explain how your view of representation intersects with theories of the emotions well. Um, uh, emotions, emotions are states, right? Thinking about emotions is probably going to involve uh, 
uh, either a Barcelona type of thing, a recalling, or it's going to, in which case it's going to involve an Aristotelian representation. Or it may be a much more conceptual um, episode, in which case I do think language is this amazing uh, code for us, and we can internalize it. And, and a lot of our conceptualization is in terms of the shared language. That's for me a very important part of vision, is that a lot of the content of vision that we ascribe to ourselves is actually derived from this shared language and a lot of the content of emotion um, uh, certainly can be. A lot of what we understand about emotion uh, can be highly conceptualized. Um, I thought uh, Aristotelian representations are certainly important when we understand and think about understanding other people. And so that was one major role they play in with emotions. But I was also interested in this idea that a lot of the things that we theorize about are actually not natural kinds in any robust way, and we're probably not going to get good empirical generalizations about that. And my thought that that's the case with emotions, it's hardly original. Paul Griffiths uh, argued it. Unfortunately, I think overly provocatively denying that there were emotions at first. Mm-hmm. He sees that we do have very primitive reactions, but we also have reactions that parable literature says that are actually very social. And so how what we feel when we are angry may depend on our social setting. Um, they're scaffolded by society is one of the, the things uh, that said... Uh, so, for example, um, I think that I think even it's been claimed that pain is much worse if you're around other people, uh, with the idea that it then transforms in that initial reaction into cries for help and assistance and stuff like that. Hmm. Well, one, um, I mean, there's a couple questions. We're we're getting close to the end, so I want to make sure I. I get everything in that I that I'd like to. Um, one one question is about uh, the role of embodiment, which we haven't you know talked about at all, but it does definitely come up throughout the book. And you mention all the no some of Al the noise work. Um, so uh, so that was one issue I did want to get to is how um, you know how your theory uh, intersects with, um, recent work on the embodiment of thought and, and embodied cognition. Yeah, that's really interesting. In fact, there's a volume coming out. I'm writing a paper for it now with Dan Hooter, I believe one of the editors and certainly somebody in the embodied, uh, cognition. Uh, I, here's, uh, a major contribution I wanted my work to do. The people who are in the embodied cognition <clears throat> camp very, very often are very hostile to uh, anything like internal representations. And I think that they're right to be hostile to uh, internal Dorian representations, but I don't think that's what neuroscience is about. And so I think they miss out on a huge amount of neuroscience. And Alvin Noe is somebody for whom I would say that is the case. And I can use a specific example that I used in the book. Um, uh, I've forgotten exactly when his 
uh, first book on perception came up. It may have been something like 2004. And by 2000, it is accepted as by vision scientists is absolutely clear. Uh, what we do is we have these, uh, the products of these intervals and uh, saccades are eye, rapid eye movements. And we have the products of uh, the intervals between saccades. And this is actually gives us something which we might even count as a kind of jerky series of rapid takes on the environment. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't experience ourselves is uh, as as it were walking through the world with a handle <laughs> with jerking around. So how do we get from the jerky takes to the smooth running of the horse across the meadow, say? Well, alphabet noise claim makes no reference to the neuroscience and says, well, we have all this uh, knowledge of how these animals behave and what they're like, and basically we use it to fill in not the perception experience, but rather a sort of our vivid beliefs about the perceptual experience. But in, let me see, I think it was 2008, there was um, publication of Vision Science, and suddenly the whole Vision Science explodes with alternative explanations, neural explanations, of how we go from a series of jerky uh, takes to the smooth transition object. And the embodied theorists can't appeal to that, and I think that's a terrible loss. Now, one intriguing hypothesis that's developed by a group of scientists, including uh, uh, perhaps my closest uh, friend here at U of H, Hugh Ogman, uh, claims that um, there is, as it were, a second level of processing that puts the jerky takes together. And while the earlier uh, jerky takes are retinotopic, that is, their space maps on to the retina, the later is not retinotopic. And so we, as it were, put together in the temporal lobe, we put the jerky takes together to create the experience of a smooth and moving object. And one of the most interesting things about this is that um, the jerky, sorry, the smooth moving object appears to move through Einsteinian space, while the retina topic objects are in Newtonian space. And so there are uh, predictable distortions in our experience of the smoothing, smoothing moving object from the Newtonian point of view. Hmm. And but honestly, I forgot which it is. <laughs> Whether it seems to get bigger as it goes faster or smaller, I think it gets bigger as it goes faster, something like that. Hmm. Um, and the embodied theorists who are avoiding internal representations can't deal with that, whereas I want to say, hey, look, you don't need to, uh, uh, you can do neuroscience without uh, putting all this content in the head. Mm-hmm. You can do it by uh, using Aristotelian representations, which is what the scientists are doing. Right. 
one of the th things about the Aristotelian representations that scientists do, and that's very important for them, is that you've got a kind of double inference. You can infer from the stimulus to the representation, you can infer from the representation to the stimulus. And that's because of their sharing of properties. And so, I mean, that's a very, very standard. Mind you, the inferences can be extremely complicated, highly mathematical inferences. Mm -hmm. But I've heard people say, and so now you know it really is a representation because we can make this double inference. So let me, um, the, there's, there's one question that um, you've, you've mentioned a couple times, public language, and it, it, you didn't, um, at least I didn't uh, pick up an emphasis on that aspect uh, in, in the book itself, although it, is, it certainly does come up there. Yeah, and and I I was just wondering if you might, uh, you know, sort of as a as a last uh, pass at the at the book, um, explain a bit more about the role of public language, um, yeah. you know, because you know you're eschewing a language of thought, right? Um, and of course, Fodor famously argued that, you know, you need that private language to have the public language. I'm not. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, obviously you will buy that argument, but um, could you, rather than argue against him, just yeah. what, what, um, how, how do you see public language, uh, you know, filling out yeah. the account that you're giving of, of the mental representations? Oh, that's really chapter seven, and it comes after this thing on Barcelona. And let me just say, first of all, I say, pretty carefully and guardedly, mm. that you're not going to get in a chapter of the book a whole account of human thought. But that what I wanted to do is to point to two theorists who were developing theories that could solve some of the problems I had. Mm -hmm. And the second one was Dahan and his account of uh, mathematical ability. And for him, we have a kind of primitive, as you may know, we have a kind of primitive numerical line that underlies um, a very primitive mathematical abilities that we share with the brutes. And even, indeed, it turns out we share with bees. Bees can count, it turns out. And what distinguishes us from um, these others, besides very obvious things, we're not bees, right. but uh, uh, is that we have the language. And it's the language that enables us to develop the mathematical uh, we have a language code, and it has, let's see, it has several aspects to it, one of which is visual, and one of which is linguistic, uh, in a very literal sense. And so, for him, mathematics is a combination of, uh, or requires, uh, a shared code. We learn it from other people. Mm -hmm and we can internalize it, and it's got these various aspects, and it's what makes mathematics possible. And I took that to be a model of how I could approach uh, thought that certainly doesn't seem to be Aristotelian. Uh, it's not clear how in Aristotelian um, terms you would get anything like productivity, uh, uh, compositionality, right. for example. So one thing one could say is, well, we have this public language that has these features, 
and we can internalize that code. And that's what we're doing with some, and maybe for a significant part of our um, thought. But this thing, I mean, it's as it were, it would be simple, and I don't think it's quite this simple to say, well, well, what we uh, really have here are Kahneman and System 1, which is Aristotelian, and System 2, which is this internalized code. But uh, a lot of our thought is System 1, and a lot of it is independent of this uh, uh, internalized code. And that's true, of course, for mathematical uh, thought that we are often, in the case of making fairly primitive estimates uh, in, in, about quantity, uh, that if Dehan is right, is language independent. Uh, so anyway, um, we have a code and we internalize it. A thing I liked about it that obviously has some differences from um, Fodor, and one of them is that um, it comes from the outside. And so <clears throat> it does seem to me that Fodor is weak on explaining uh, how it is that we manage to understand each other. It's, I think it's controversial how well we do really understand each other. I don't, I don't think we do understand each other terribly well, but we're pretty good at understanding each other's speech. And uh, one explanation would be, well, we're biologically similar and it comes from the inside, but another explanation would be that a lot of it comes from the outside. Hmm. Well, I think we are we are out of out of time. So, I just to wrap up, um, what's can you say something about your your next project? Where you're going from here? Are you building on this book, or have you turned to other you know other topics entirely? Uh, I well, I have three sorts of areas in which I work. One is cognitive. I, I think actually I probably should call it moral philosophy. Uh, the second is uh, history of philosophy. And the third, of course, which is very important to me, is feminist philosophy. You'll know that I, I blog on feministphilosophers.wordpress.com, and there's an enormous amount of uh, things we need to think about. I think uh, they're really interesting questions coming, uh, and we're going to have a diversity in philosophy conference in at the end of May, in fact, you're on the program committee, <laughs> as you know. And one of the things we're going to be looking at is um, uh, how do you revise and challenge the canon? Uh, and you, you may understand that with my work, uh, I can construct a lot. In fact, I did. I really hit the ceiling when this happened. I can construct a logically valid refutation. And somebody just looks at and says, oh, I don't think he needs to be bothered about this. Uh, and that's because there is this informal canon and this informal agreement. And if you step outside that sort of, uh, those boundaries, then you may not be heard at all. Or even logically valid stuff gets just dismissed, is not worth bothering about. So that's a huge problem, I think, for feminist philosophy. And that's something I want to work on. Um, with the neurophilosophy, I really need to look much more, and I think this discussion is many aware of it, even more, much more, at how similarity is getting used. And I just feel rather blessed having discovered this work in um, representation of similarity and the use of geometry to articulate a notion of similarity. 
among uh, uh, neural firing patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the history of philosophy, I think I may, I would really like to write more about Hume and skepticism. So there are a couple of areas I'm looking at. Great. Uh, well, we, we are out of time at this point, so um, uh, I wanted to thank you for for a uh, an illuminating conversation about your new book. Yeah, thank you. I, I learned a lot from your questions, and I am actually grateful. Okay. Well, thank you very much for, for your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ann Jap Jacobson, Professor of Philosophy and Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Houston. We've been talking about her new book, Keeping the World in Mind, just out from Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>